Tuesday, we have a celebration of life for Miss Edith Farrell. The deacons, by the way, have been asked to be pallbearers and honorary pallbearers for that uh, event. Uh, as Doug said, the visitation will be 10. Uh, the funeral itself will be 11. Uh, we, we're in the book of Revelation. We return there today. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. But before we do, I want to remind you of the connection, or at least the comparison, between the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation. It may not be something you've ever given much thought, but you'll remember God's people were in bondage in Egypt. They were oppressed by a ruler who was the personification of Satan. The fountain of hatred against God's people came from Pharaoh. He wanted them destroyed, but God wanted them delivered. And so God worked their deliverance, poured out a series of judgments on uh, the people of, of Egypt from which his people were protected, particularly that final judgment that he poured out, the plague of the firstborn, when his people were told to take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house and they would not be harmed, and they did, and they were not as God promised. One of the things that I want you to see, however, is that uh, in the book of Revelation, God's people are also under a period of persecution. Uh, Satan is in charge of that persecution. The personification of Satan is the Roman emperor himself, who is, who is the fountainhead of all hatred. When John writes the book of Revelation... That's what was going on then. And, of course, that has continued throughout the ages and will continue throughout the ages. But the book of Revelation looks forward to a time in the end when, the when Satan will be incarnate in the person of the Antichrist or the beast and he will pour out his hatred against God's people and God will pour out judgments on the kingdom of the Antichrist, just as he poured out judgments on Pharaoh, and God's people will be protected. But the way God's people protect themselves is to wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. I'd like to begin by sharing with you one passage of Scripture from the book of Exodus, if I might. It's a passage of Scripture that's always been special to me, especially the way it ends in the original Hebrew. I think it will be special to you. From that passage, then, we will move to Revelation chapter 2. So let me read you these verses from Exodus 2, verse 23, the middle of verse 23 to verse 25. Remember, the sons of Israel are in bondage. And the Bible says, And the sons of Israel sighed, because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and the last phrase of that verse, verse 25, reads in Hebrew, and God knew. God knew. That's one of the things that we see as we look at the book of Revelation is that God always knows the plight of his people. God is not surprised about what you face 
God is not surprised about where you live. Now we turn to verse 12 of chapter 2. As Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. First, to understand these letters that Jesus writes to these churches, we need to know a little bit about the city itself because there are references to the city and to some characteristics about the city in each of these letters. Pergamum, like Ephesus and Smyrna, was a great city. As a matter of fact, it was the capital of Rome's rule in Asia Minor. Someone said if Ephesus was the New York of Asia Minor, Pergamum would have been the Washington, D.C., of Asia Minor. In, uh, as you approached Pergamum, there was a hill, a city hill, and on the terrace of that hill were four pagan temples to different pagan gods and monuments to those gods. But one of the gods that they worshipped in Pergamum was the Roman emperor himself. Uh, the Roman emperors were often declared to be divine after their death. But as you know, the Roman emperor Domitian in the time of John had declared himself to be divine and demanded that he be worshipped. He demanded that people say, Caesar is Lord. And if they said instead, Christ is Lord, then they were killed. And so as people approached the city of Pergamum, looking at the city hill, it looked like a giant throne sitting in the middle of the city. So Jesus makes this reference to the people of Pergamum. I know where you dwell. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Second, I want you to consider what Jesus knew about Pergamum. Jesus knew that the devil had a stronghold in that city. He knew where Satan's throne was in Pergamum. He knows uh, knew where the devil's power was centralized. He knew about the Roman emperor's persecution uh, of, of the believers there in that city. He knew what was happening in their life. Jesus also knows where the devil's stronghold is in this community. If the devil has a stronghold in Loosedale or in George County, you can make sure that Jesus knows where it is. And you can make sure that on the day of judgment, when Jesus judges the devil and all his followers, the devil will judge those who, or Jesus will judge those who belong to the devil in this community and those who are associated with him. And if you are one of those, then be careful because Jesus says to you, I know where you live. He said, I know where Satan's throne is. I know where Satan dwells in your community. So here we are living near the end of the first quarter 
of the 21st century. We're living in unique times. I think all of us would say, and we've said before, we, we make mention that our kids are growing up in a different time than when we grew up. Our teenagers are facing different challenges than we face. They face different temptations than we faced. And the temptations are perhaps greater even in your life, you would acknowledge they're greater in your life than they were a quarter of a century ago or when you were growing up as a teenager. So the Lord knows our temptations. He knows our trials. He knows where we live and, and the time in which we live. So third, we need to consider what Jesus knew about the character of the believers who lived in that city. Now, remember... As, as we go all the way back to the book of Exodus and we just look there and we see that God knew when his people were suffering. He knew what the situation was like. God also knows what you face and I face. He knows what my week has been like this week. He knows what your week has been like this week. He knows what's around the corner for me. He knows what's around the corner for you. We don't know that, but he does. And this is what he says he knows about the church at Pergamum. He says in verse 13, You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Persecution was not a possibility for the believer living in Pergamum. It was a fact of life. Now these people were living in a pagan culture and it was to their advantage if they adopted the pagan customs uh, they could keep their job they could uh, keep their influence and they could hold on to their life but if they disassociated themselves with the culture and identified with Christ it was at great risk to them and Jesus knew that but sometimes we don't always know that Jesus knows what we're facing Sometimes it feels to us like Jesus is not aware of where we live, that he's not aware of what's going on in our family. Do you think that Antipas had a widow living in that community who was wondering if Jesus knew the suffering that she had been through? Do you think that she might have had grieving children who were wondering whether or not he knew their suffering? Well, just as Jesus knew the suffering of the people in the Old Testament and said so and told them so. And it says, I know, he said this about the people living in Pergamum. I know where you live. I know what you face. And I know about Antipas. It was as if Jesus was saying the same thing to them that he said to people in the days of the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, he said, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The ladies played at the beginning of the service, not knowing that I would be reading that passage of Scripture. You might remember the song, Some Through the Water some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. God takes care of his children. He leads his children along. He knows where they live. 
He knows what they face, and he knows that about you. If you don't hear anything else from this message this, this morning, please know that God knows the circumstances of your life and mine. How did Antipas die? Well, tradition tells us that he was slowly roasted to death inside of a hollow brass bull. So Jesus knew about Antipas. In Pergamum, the emperor, the Roman emperor, the Roman government held the power of the sword. The, the expression the power of the sword means the power of life and death. And those who opposed him or refused to worship him risked their lives. In Pergamum, there were a handful of believers who were not afraid of the power of the sword. But unfortunately, there were another group of believers in Pergamum who had lost their fear of the sword with power. And Jesus also mentions this in his letter to Pergamum. So the fourth thing that we need to consider about Jesus' letter to this church is this crack in their commitment that he identifies. Jesus is the one, he says, I am the one with a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. But some in the church no longer feared him, and, and they were living in compromise with their pagan environment. Look at verse 14. He says, But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I know that's a little confusing. Who's Balaam and who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we know more about Balaam, really, than we do about the Nicolaitans. But it might be good if you knew what Balaam meant and what Nicolaitans meant. The words both mean the same thing. One's an Old Testament word written in from the Hebrew. One's a New Testament word from the Greek. And they both mean conqueror of the people. How, do, how would the devil conquer the people? How would the devil seek to conquer the church? Well, what Balaam did in the Old Testament, he conquered the people by leading them into compromise with their culture. Spiritual and moral compromise with their culture. And in the same way, apparently there were some in the church, these Nicolaitans, who were saying, hey, it's better for us. We can keep our job. We can keep our reputation. We can keep our position in the community if we compromise with the culture. We, we don't have to worship these heathen gods. We can go to these heathen festivals. We can go to eat their food. We can go down to the casino and eat the nice meals without being identified with the gamblers and the prostitutes and the other people sort of the same thing and so they said we can go and we can be a part and still identify with Jesus and Jesus said no you can't compromise with the culture and still identify with me what's the big issue right now in our world today in our country compromise with the culture identify with the culture so that you can reach the culture no identify with Jesus and stand apart from the culture. Be who God wants you to be. And this is what Jesus is, 
is seeing as a crack in their commitment. They're trying to be part of the culture so that they can still be popular, so that they can hang on to their job, so that they can hang on to their reputation in the community, but more than anything else, so that they can hang on to their life. And Jesus says, look at Antipas. He was my faithful witness. But some of you have a crack in your commitment. And by the way, do you know what happened to those in Balaam's day who compromised with the culture? The Lord sent a sword among them. And so some of them died. Do you know how many of them died? Not 10, not 20, not 100, not 200, not 1,000, not 2,000. 24,000 people died that day, the day they entered into compromise by the conqueror of the people, Balaam. And so here the Lord says, by the way, have you ever had anybody threaten you? Have, any, have you ever had anybody slip up behind you and, and whisper and say, I know where you live. Well, now we need to consider the warning that Jesus issued to those who compromised their commitment. This is exactly what Jesus said here. He told them he knew where they lived. He said, I have something against you. And look at verse 16 and 17. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Imagine that. The Lord Jesus at war with his church. There are only two battles that are fought in the book of Revelation. One with a false church and one with a false Christ. You don't want to pick a fight with Jesus. The weapon he uses is the sword of his mouth. And with one word out of his mouth, he could speak that segment of the church into oblivion. With one word out of his mouth, he could take away their blessings. With one word out of his mouth, he could take away their health. With one word out of his mouth, he could send them to their eternal destiny. In James 4.4, the book of James talks about compromise with the culture, except James uses the word the world. He said, he who makes himself a friend of the world has set himself as an enemy of God. That's very clear. If you're a friend of the world, if you compromise with the culture so that you can be a part of the culture, then you're an enemy of God. Compromising with the culture may, be, may make you on the right side of history at the moment, but it'll always make you on the wrong side of God. Finally, Jesus makes three tremendous promises to this church. Beginning in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to the one who conquers and is not conquered, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, uh, which no one knows but he who receives it. So first, let me deal with the hidden manna. We know that there was manna in the wilderness that fell every day. That was God's way of providing for his people. Maybe Jesus is saying here, and we don't really know, but we can speculate. Maybe he's saying, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. You may lose your job, but I will take care of you. I will give you provision that you don't know anything about. I will give you provision from heaven. 
But there was also manna in the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they kept a little of it. Aaron's rod that budded in some of the manna, they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. He could be talking about something even more special than that. Second, he talks about this new name that nobody knows. I have a name that I call Michael Van Nort. It's a good name. Not many people know it. He knows it, and I know it. And he has a name that he calls me. And we use that name that we call each other, and we're intimate, we're friends, and we use that sort of a friendship name. He call, I call him a name, he calls me a name. We do that because we love each other, right, Michael? And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. Nobody's going to know it but me and you. It's a mark of intimacy. But the one I really like is this white stone. Why in the world would Jesus talk about a white stone at Pergamum? Because at Pergamum, they mined the white stone. They had a mine and they got white stones out of it. And this white stone was used in three different ways in the world of that day. The white stone was given to a man who had been tried and justly acquitted. He carried that stone as a sign that he was free of the charge that had been placed against him. So for the believer, this would mean that he carried that stone to say, hey, my sins are forgiven. This is my mark of forgiveness. Second, the white stone was given to a person who had been a slave and was now free. And so the white stone was a mark of his freedom. I'm no longer a slave to sin, it would say to the believer. I have been set free by amazing grace. Third, the white stone was given to the winner of a race or a contest as an indication that he'd overcome opposition. It was also given to a warrior who returned from the battle with victory over the enemy. That white stone is a, with a new name means this person stood strong for Jesus in spite of the consequences. So I want to ask you, will Jesus give you hidden manna? Will he provide for you in a time of difficulty? If you stand for him and it costs you something, will Jesus take care of you? Yes, he will. Is there a name that Jesus has for you? Let me ask you a question. What do you think Jesus' name for Edith Farrell was? What do you think? The lady that played the organ until she couldn't play it anymore. And the day she stopped playing, she went to the, directly to the nursing home. And then played at the nursing home until she couldn't play anymore. One, the lady in her room to the Lord. Lived to 102. Loved the Bible even when she couldn't see it. Couldn't see to read it. And when you read it to her, she would say, now, isn't that wonderful? What was his name for her? Something precious, I'm sure. Something that when she got there, nobody knows it. But her and Jesus. What will be his name for you? Will you give, be given a white stone that says, I'm forgiven, I'm free, and I won the battle. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. Do you belong to the culture or do you belong to Christ? Let's pray.